Hello, you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This is episode number 21 and it features the artistic director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tonietti. Richard and I talked in the foyer at the Barbican on Monday the 8th of October. We talked about lots of things in this 55-minute episode. Uh, Sydney Opera House, Brutalist Architecture, London as a Concert Destination and three works from the ACO's back catalogue which... For this podcast, I've put together, along with a selection of recordings and artists referenced by Richard, into a dedicated Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes and the accompanying blog post. What excites you about coming here? Well, it is the um, city of unrivaled riches. I mean, if you took the the problems alone, it's the most vibrant city in the world, musically. It's the greatest marketplace for culture in the world and the Barbican I, I, I think I was told the Barbican is the, mo- is the busiest cultural centre in the world uh, and how, I believe How do you as a, as a musician and a performer how do you feel when you enter this particular building? Oh, it's mayhem and chaos and so much going on it's almost hard to absorb because you've got the guild hall You've got Milton Court, you've got all the music going on, and then you've got the drama. And then you've got this strange, you know, brutalist structure. You've got those apartments there. Um, I think it's in one of the wealthiest councils in the world as well. And then you've got the Guildhall, you've got, you know, and then that's just this little area in amongst, you know, the whole, whole of London. So there's so much to react to. It's It's... Hardly a place for uh, feeling zen, is it? <laughs> it's good. Uh, no, no, it's, fair enough. Fair it's enough. good, you know, <clears throat> to practice meditation here. Uh, am I certainly, right? str- <laughs> certainly, um, you know, pushes you to the edge. Uh, but Milton Court, where we're really based here, um, although we're doing our film Mountain in the in the big hall, um, Milton Court is a great concert hall super duper one of the best I think yeah um, I'm interested in understanding what I understand that there's a great marketplace I wonder what the challenges are in trying to make an impression in this kind of marketplace because from my perspective I assume that there is an enormous amount of competition I, I think it's John you know it's best just not to think about it it's like when you're creating something you're not thinking Oh, I hope it's successful. I mean, to the back of your mind, you hope that it resonates somehow. But, look, we used to just come in and have, you know, a one-night stand with with cities. We're trying not to do that. The Australian Chamber Orchestra now is trying to get residencies um, in different parts of the world. And so we're we're ecstatic. I can't... (laughs) And I'm not just saying it. We're so happy that we've got this residency. Because it means that we can bring more than just you know a one night concert to to um to the barbican and therefore to london so we can bring you know our different wares to the to the to the marketplace how does that uh how does that help you when you're back home um goodness how does it help us when we're back home well it means that in preparing for the tours we're not um 
you know, when, when, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just I, I mean, in so, it's sort of different levels. But the word help it doesn't necessarily help us. But how does it benefit? Yes. Well, it just means that when we're planning, we can plan different programs for our international touring rather than just. You know, often we're playing one program in uh, different cities over you know ten or twelve nights. So there's a totally different perspective, and it's how what the place that we want to be. I'm going to ask you one, one very small thing, and for the purpose of the podcast, I'm going to keep it in. But can I ask you not to tap the table? Was I tapping the oh, table? No, only very oh, slightly. God, no, 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 no. I don't. No, no hands. <laughs> you're going to leave this just in because too. I was thinking. There's going to be a lot of tapping. That's no, no, going no. To eventually Look, be very I've tied But I do hands. want you to be really comfortable. I've tied my hands behind my back. <laughs> um, uh, how do you think, how, do, how does international touring change uh, your playing as a group? Oh, God, you're asking a lot of curly questions here. Curly questions? How, how does it change our playing? Well, does well, it? Well, does for it? a start, we're always playing internationally. I mean, when we, we play outside of our home country. Yeah. Because it is an international orchestra. Um, Does it tell the truth? It doesn't. No. I mean, okay. Well, you don't have to sit with your hands. No. (laughs) uh, It's good to describe things, visual things, in in an audio podcast. Um, I've now got my hands in my pockets. So, look, there are certain practical things. Um, It's really expensive to tour, full stop, and. Um, and so if we've got a good network of wind and brass players, then we'll pick people up, you know, that we can trust and love. The, um, uh, yeah, so we work with a lot of European musicians, so it saves a bit of money not having to bring them out to Australia. <laughs> there, uh, I, th- there is a, there's a reason for asking. I knew whenever, this was a... Whenever I go to yeah. a different location, yeah. the quality of my listening is different. So if I come to the if I make the the arduous journey from South East London to the Barbican as I did yeah, last week yeah. to a concert, then I will listen in a particular way. What I notice if you mean different to than if you go to the South Bank, isn't it? Uh, no, different. Uh, if I different from when I go to a different country, for example. So okay. I listen. I find that I listen more attentively when when I go on when I embark on a journey in order to go when you go hear. on a listening tour yeah it's not intended to be a listening tour right. but that's my experience and I'm just right. one, I just wonder whether there is a similar sort of experience no. for, a, for a musician no whether we're oh, there are, I think a lot of those big orchestras you know sort of stuck in their city and then every few years they go on an international tour they might rise a bit um, but for us no we've we throw ourselves into. Uh, we throw ourselves at our at our music just as much as we do in Barbican or Wollongong. I mean, it might be a bit more stressful, but we're still applying ourselves in the same way. I would say. I mean, there are occasional times when you know we'll do a development gig, so a fundraising sort of gig, and we. Do it on very little rehearsal, and we're a bit more relaxed. But no, I don't think there are. We don't apply ourselves in any different way. Uh, for those people who haven't heard the Australian Chamber Orchestra before, what three defining characteristics? Would you, you are tell? asking the most d- difficult question. Uh, why are they difficult? Okay, so <laughs> is that is that because nobody else has asked you them before? Yeah. But maybe it's um, maybe it's their failing rather than. Did mine. you say three? Yeah, no, it needs to be three. Yeah. Oh. 
Jesus. Okay, well, look, <laughs> we, we stand when we play. Right. We are um, a string group of about 17, but you rarely find us in just in that configuration. So this is um, the second part of the question uh, answer still. So um, we go anywhere from a small group to a quite a large group so we can play Beethoven 9 or we've even done Mahler 4 um, and we work with film as well so our repertoire I would argue is as broad as you could possibly find but having said that and I'm still uh, uh, I'm still on two I'm number two because okay, I said right. number one is standing yep. Yep. number two um, yes is that uh, right from the beginning I set myself the task of defining repertoire so that when we play early music that we would adapt ourselves and when we play um, Brahms, Bartok, um, Stravinsky that we try and really change the character of, of the of our sound so that we adapt to the music rather than uh, there are a lot of orchestras that this is our character and they sound the same no matter whether they're playing Bach and Stravinsky or Stravinsky they might be a great orchestra or not a good orchestra but this is their philosophy whereas I have the philosophy that we adapt like actors you know to, to the role because there are some actors no matter what they're acting like Harrison Ford he always looks the same you know um, and the third one is that we are based in Australia. Yeah, we travel um, all over the world. Well, all over the world. Have we been to Yemen, Somali, Iraq, Iran? No. Where Pakistan. have you been then? Well, you know, <laughs> all over the world means parts of Europe. Okay. North America, parts of Asia, and of course Australia. So not all over the world at all. But pretty much all over the world. Mm, no? Not really. Okay. No. Well... Okay. But well, maybe it feels we like. But anyway, so the, the the main thing is that we are a travelling band. We're travelling all the time, and it's very much an international uh, group of people. I get the impression that you don't like difficult questions, so I'm going to ask you one more difficult Excellent. question, I knew which is: given that you are an international orchestra, then uh, what do you? What message does that orchestra bring about Australia? to other countries oh, you have a glint you in your really eye that says you bastard you bastard okay. because there must be yeah. I can't believe that you look the fa- if we were called the Sunshine Orchestra it would sound a bit weird it would, it would, <laughs> yeah. it would. so you are called the Australian Chamber Orchestra so the Australian within Orchestra. that you know is the it, it identifies us geographically doesn't it and so therefore people are going to be um you know, uh, a lot of people still identify Australia as just a sporting nation. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Everywhere you go in Australia, we're just full of rich, vibrant culture. I'm saying this with a very yeah, I was going to say you're slightly like, dry. <laughs> we've got to be uh, reminding people that you know we're a proud sporting nation don't we? Even on the sales of the beloved Opera House. Yes, indeed. Have you read that? Yes, it's soon to be... Am I allowed to swear? Of course you can, yes. This is an independent podcast. Fucking idiot. (laughs) Can you believe it? They're putting... They're putting... They're putting... Yes, Yes, I can't believe it. 
Yeah. It's a race horn. Yes. Um, for the um, purpose of the body. Ra- sorry, it's a horse racing ad yes. on the sales of the Sydney Opera House. So it's an ad. Um, now, anyway. I've, re- I've read about that today, that that it has, quote, sparked debates right across yeah, Australia. Yeah. Has it sparked debates? Yes, it has. it has. Okay, Thank so people... God. And I hope most people just think that the government or the people who made the decisions in government are just, let me swear again, fucking idiots. Uh, is there... Has the Sydney Opera House got the same iconic status as, say, somewhere like Buckingham Palace? Would it be the equivalent of, of projecting a, yeah. a, a racing and, advert? Well, on so, but it, it, and so it should. Or, yes. or the Statue of Liberty. I, I mean, and, and for it to be um, a horse racing you know, event, it's, it's just baloney. It's nuts. And it's a, it's a World Heritage building. You know, there aren't many. And like, I think America might only have, uh, the States might only have 10 or something. So. You know, it's it's um, it's a travesty, I think. But there is a certain irony there. So, part of the money, I think, quite a large swathe of the money to construct the the place came from the lottery. <laughs> so, we can't say, well, it's because of gambling. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah. But Hit come on, to advertise. <laughs> yes, a racing. I think any. You know, it's not a billboard, but uh, uh, who, who's the Prime Minister this week in Australia? Oh, you're going to have to help me. Yeah, it's your right. country. Well, no, I, I'll, only, I'll only learn the name of the Prime Minister if they stay longer than a few weeks. But um, So a guy called Scott Morrison, he came out and said, if you can believe it, it's the greatest billboard we have. Can you believe it? But can it I is. swear again? <laughs> well, no. I think you've conveyed yeah, your okay. view. Yeah. But... But I think uh, the, the important thing is, is that it is the greatest advert already in and of itself yeah, because correct. it is an iconic venue. I wonder to what extent something like yeah, I mean, that... But we're not, but we're not, I'm not saying celebrating that the opera house. No, no, we're exactly, just using exactly. these big... You may as well put up a big white sheet and uh, put this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But to use the opera house is raping and pillaging the, the construction. And if... And, and, as though Utzon, the architect, would have agreed to that. I mean, what what impact does that have on you as a musician and an artist? That sort of decision does that make not you really, go? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make you feel Look, downgraded it, or downvalued. No, no, not at all. I'm a bit bigger than that. It just makes me think. You know, the people who are making those decisions have just you know got have got dollar signs in front of them the whole time, and that they they themselves are. I, I mean, they're, they're debasing the Opera House. Let's be serious about it. They're, they are debasing the Opera House. The Opera House is more art than architecture. And you see, they, the problem for them, the people making the decision, is because they're driven by money. They're not able to... They're conflating a business opportunity with um, other... Um, experiences we've had where the opera house has been lit mm-hmm. and and because it's a commercial for commercial reasons they're also conflating um, this uh, present lighting of the opera house with say um, we, we lit the opera house in with a rainbow because of same-sex marriage or something or refugee day or, so, or something like this 
but it wasn't for money. Mm. Now, it was a political. It was a political statement, yes. But mind you, seventy-five percent or so of the Australian public voted in a plebiscite for same-sex marriage. So, that, so therefore, the majority of people were yes, for it, it right? It's and not it's a human less of an advert, and more it of a is celebration, a really. civil rights yeah. issue. Yeah. Uh, there's no question whether you're against or for. It, mm. It's um, it's a civil rights issue. Whereas this is just it, it is a commercial uh, prospect. So even if it were selling you know, sustainable energy, uh, if it were a sustainable energy company selling green something or other, it, it would still be a commercial enterprise. And I, I think we've got to draw the line. So why am I answering... Uh, you're we, answering that because uh, of my assumptions. Oh, about, about Australia. Australia. Yeah, that's yeah. my. So my assumptions of Australia are that. So I get more, oh, more no, no, messaging right. from PRs in Australia about Good. classical music yeah. events. Okay. That surprises me on some level because I'm unaware of quite a lot of okay. classical music in, so, in so, Australia. Okay. That's really where I'm. Well, uh, yeah, we, well, we do have the most famous. Uh, concert house in the world hmm. being the Sydney Opera House don't we so uh-huh. there is like there it's is more more people would know about the Sydney Opera House than the, the Met or the um, or the you know the Covent Garden <laughs> isn't that and yet, funny and yet uh, as Except, an outside, uh, yeah, as but you're not aware of what goes been, on the inside uh, exactly as someone who's not been there my assumption is that's for opera I know, I know it's a terrible yeah, thing yeah. to say. No, no, but, but so it should be. So, it is so called the Sydney Opera House for a good reason. That, that but it, we already th- lost that, um, John, at the beginning because, you see, Utzon, the architect, the Danish architect, he had designed the Opera House to have the Opera Theatre as the main large hall. But this was changed because of um, lobbying from the then ABC, like your BBC, um, orchestras at the time saying, well, we, they think that they should get the big hall. So it, it was built with many compromises and, and there are many problems within the Opera House. Um, least of all, we ended up a bit like London concert halls with compromised acoustics. Mm. Um, but the building as I said, is more art than architecture. It's an ex- extraordinary building and there's a lot of fantastic activity within the Opera House. There is a lot of terrific um, music that occurs all through our vast and reasonably flat nation and the most positive thing I can say about it is that it's really evolving quickly, rapidly and and in and and in a way that makes me want to stay. It does make me want to stay. I mean, look, you know, of course there are people like this all over the world. I mean, if Trump could broadcast, you know, Trump's stake on the Statue of Liberty, he would, right? Hopefully, he won't. <laughs> well, let's not, <laughs> let's not hold our breath. And of course, you know, Boris Johnson, I'm sure he'd be quite happy to, you know, um, put something on Buckingham Palace. You know. I think he's currently still focused on building a bridge, yeah, like yeah, a physical exactly. bridge between the UK and, yeah. or rather, Britain, or Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, you know, there are idiots all over the world. But look, culturally, where uh, we feel reasonably proud of having the name. Uh, I'm uh, Australians aren't 
overtly nationalistic. Um, we don't, you know... Is there snobbery around classical music in Australia? Snobbery around classical music? Is there snobbery Not around opera? Yeah, but the, uh, the opera is snobbery. I mean, come on, go to Covent Garden, they're all wearing... <sighs> Ouch. I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with you there. It's true, though. I think that it is I a vehicle for snobbery. But you said, is there for, for snobbery around? Yes. Yeah, well, yes, there oh, is. Oh, fine. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. Okay, you've talked. Wow, that's, a, yes, you've picked up on my language and yeah. been quite specific about it. Yeah. God, I hate that. So, um, uh, but, but is there snobbery within the magic flute? No. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an opera for people. It's about people and it's for people. Is there snobbery in classical music in Australia? That's but, really the question I should have asked. Hello, there's snobbery in jazz music. Yes. Some of the jazz musicians, I know the biggest snobs, except yes. they don't have money. That's the big difference. So if you, if you get um, a sort of cultural snobbery and money, then you've got, you know, you're setting yourself up. So, yeah, there is, but... Doesn't sort of perturb me. I mean, um, there's this snobbery with you know certain rock bands. God, there's a lot of snobbery with. I tell you what, with um, the difference between you know grind core, heavy metal, death metal. I mean, if you call a certain band, oh yeah, that you know that death metal band, and it's not a death metal band. It's a grind core. I have to. Thank I have you to very tell you, much. I have to level with you that I am moving out of my comfort zone into a whole <laughs> series of genres. You mean that you I don't have know? No, you don't knowledge know, about at all. You don't know <laughs> no. a band called? Can I swear again? You you can. I'm not sure. You can. Yes. Okay, a band called <laughs> Anal Cunt. No, no, I don't. <laughs> is that a real so, name? Yes, it is. I Brian don't Ford. think you should say okay, that. Okay, have you heard? Have you get, heard of a band called Mayhem? Uh, I'm unfamiliar with Mayhem's Norwegian right. death metal. Right. Anyway, okay. look, there's snobbery wherever you go, but if you marry it with money and power and you make it, you know, inaccessible for people to, to get to because they don't know where to start and you put them in a concert hall where, you know, people are deathly quiet in the audience and they don't move and... And if somebody does move, like a friend of mine, he attended an ACO concert with me. We were looking at a, a, um, a cellist called Giovanni Solomon perform with the ACO. I, I wasn't directing for this tour. I was sitting next to this friend of mine who's a world champion surfer. And the lady, he wanted to take an Instagram photo. Oops. No, no, but listen to this. Giovanni Solomon, yeah. obviously Italian, terrific Italian... Um, cellist, the day before, he'd taken an Instagram photo of the audience whilst he was playing his piece. Right? Okay. So, contextualised there. So, he asked me quietly, can I take... You know what phones are like these yes. days? They're so... They don't make any noise. And no. I said, sure. So, just very... Oh, so took a... Right, okay. Yeah, he, yeah. he just took a photo um, in a perfectly apt moment of the... Australian chamber was from the audience sitting next to him. Sure, fine. He wasn't even making a rustle noise. This lady behind him hit him. Yes, I've been hit in a concert hall before by somebody who sat behind me. Ridiculous. I was, I was really. So hurt. yeah, it's, it's still <laughs> yeah. yeah There's lots of. Stuff. But the, did the surfer have a lot of followers on his Instagram account? Yeah. Well, then that, I mean that's you know that's a win, isn't it? That's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of content marketing that that is really quite expensive. So yeah, way. there's a lot of snobbery around. Music, but there's classical music, but there's a lot of snobbery around 
all types of music. But, but if it makes it inaccessible and you don't know how to relate to it, then the music suffers and the snobbery should be removed. And yes, that lady shouldn't have hit my friend and she needs to, she needs to relax a bit about audiences in concert halls. I, 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 I wouldn't mind if audiences relaxed in concert halls. Uh, what differences do you see between audiences? Not when you're playing Webern. You no. need you need to have yes. quiet. And I, but I tell you what, we played in in Vienna, played the Opus Five number, um, uh, Opus Five Five pieces of Webern, and um, and the audience was pretty disgusting. They were demonstrating by just going <laughs> seriously. Coughing and spluttering and wow. rustling things. They How were rude. De- still demonstrating. I think it was written in 1925. Okay, <laughs> so they need to sort of get over it, really. It's sort of. Uh, what differences do you see in audiences uh, in Australia compared to here? Yeah, well, also within Australia, there are lots of differences. So Melbourne is a very reserved. How you'd imagine, you know. Old England to be, as Barry Humphrey said, they still have you know pictures of Winston Churchill up on their fridges. I thought Australians generally didn't like Barry Humphreys, or rather, um, nah, an average. I thought the no. I thought the assumption was that actually you are it's cultural appropriation. It's a bit of an insult. No. You're taking the piss out of us. He is. I don't <laughs> no, know if yeah, it's no. cultural appropriation because he's appropriating a woman. Let's not get into okay. the social humanities now. But, I don't think there's time. But, but, um, but no, we adore Barry Humphreys. And okay. anyone who doesn't, um, you know, really should leave the country. Uh, that's, that's, a <laughs> that's a severe thing. So Melbourne, quite straight-laced. No, sort of no old Melbourne England is very type quite reserved. Yeah. Okay, and Sydney? As you'd imagine. You know, we, I don't we know, feel very relaxed. Married. No, as you'd imagine the difference to be. So, you know, we all wear um, board shorts right. in concerts okay. and flippers and snorkels. Not on stage, though, surely. No, no, no. no. We dress okay. in tails. Right. And we are quite comfortable putting horse racing ads up on the sales of the Sydney Opera House. Ha, ha. <laughs> no, and we're a, we're, Sydney is a very gregarious town. Very. So we're more extrovert. And where is the hardest town to play in, in terms of generating an audience? Per population, you'd have to consider, um, rather than just an audience, um, probably Melbourne. Right. Even though Melbourne likes to think of itself as the cultural capital of Australia, but I like to tell Melbournians that they, they are indeed the cultural capital of Melbourne. Do you tell them that in print or on no. stage or at the end and of the concert? I really shouldn't be saying it here. <laughs> right. It's a long way away. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, but I noticed that you dodged the question because my original question was uh, what differences do you perceive between Australian audiences and UK audiences? Okay. So it's so dependent on the hall. Right. Um, you know, if you're in a big dry hall... You, you normally have an audience to match and if you're in a small resonant hall um, but we, we yeah we, we've we've we're doing okay in London and 
I think the audiences. No, I'm, and I'm not just saying it because I wouldn't um, if I didn't believe it. I think that across the board, the audiences are the most. They just know stuff. They know lots of stuff, <laughs> and they're incredibly well informed and passionate. And you know, they don't have a lot of time. Living in London is is. In, taxing mm. and so you're going to make you know a choice a hard decision what to go and see I'm amazed that anyone decides to come and see us but they do aren't we grateful and they've seen a lot of and heard a lot of other stuff and this is a totally different world than you know turning up in a place uh, in outback Australia where they've never heard an orchestra before but common factor is that if you play well and with passion you get a passionate response whether you're uber informed or you've never heard heard an orchestra before I have listened to three recordings uh, made by the ACO today um, and they're all very very different aside from the fact they feature different works they are. They strike me as very different approaches, and they're all live recordings as well. What were they? Uh, Mozart Forty. Yeah. Um, I heard some Bach, and I heard an arrangement for string ensemble of um, a Beethoven late quartet. Oh yeah, Opus One Thirty, uh, which I'd never heard before. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted to ask you about those three things because yeah. what really struck me about Mozart Forty was that it was almost like a historically informed. Performance. I don't think it. My assumption is that it wasn't. It was all played on modern instruments. No, it was actually played on gut strings. With, isn't it a horrible expression? Period winds. But anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. It's, it's deeply unpleasant. Yeah. Yes. The no. co- copies. Okay. So of, it was an authentic performance. Well, um, I'm not much into the, using that word authentic because okay. it implies that other people are inauthentic, which is quite derogatory. So and I don't. Period performance. Uh, period well, instruments. Period. It's. I like gut strings. Um, but Heifetz, maybe even Leonard Kogan, uh, most people played on gut strings until recently, so it's not just about 18th century performance practice. Um, and the, the, um, the, and historically informed. I mean, lots of people are historically informed. I just, it's the hardware. So I like that hardware. I like the gut strings, um, and I really like people who specialise in playing instruments that might have been around when the composers wrote the music. What is it that you like about gut strings? Um, the, the texture, listen to Heifetz play, listen to Chrysler play. Um, the it has a sound have this feel. warmth and resonance that's quite different to steel. It's sort of softer, arguably, but, um, but they've got Yes, a warmth in, in the sound. Um, Stephen Isselis plays on gut. Um, <coughs> so those those instrumentalists who played on that in that concert were they people who they didn't restring their instruments, presumably they didn't restring their instruments for yeah. that. Concert. They did yeah, restring absolutely. Them. Okay. I mean, we've even gone so far, John, as to play. Okay, we've. If we kept the same strings all through... Yeah, yeah, because you can't... Change. So, But to change pitch and 
um, wind instruments um, in a concert. <laughs> so go from 415, uh-huh. uh, the A vibrating yeah. at 415 vibrations per second, to um, 440, which is the modern tuning. So, yeah. So we, we and like you've done that in one with concert? Always, yeah. But I've always been... I grew up, when I was a student, I was really imbibed in the so-called you know, authentic, historically informed performance yeah. practices, as it was co- coined by Hogwood, I think, hip. And we w- we've worked with Anna Bilesma, you know, um, don't say you know, it's a dreadful thing to say. Anna Bilesma, Franz Bruggen, Christopher Hogwood. Why is it, that, why is you it know, a dreadful thing to say? No, people say, you know, you know, all the time. Oh, I see. No, well, that's all right. I'm not judging you. I haven't well, even noticed it until, the, until you flanked it. I hope I've better not flank it. Well, you know, I hope <laughs> I haven't done it too much. But it's always been part of my musical fabric. And I, you know, <laughs> I always... I didn't enjoy them because they were reactionaries wanting to go back. I would argue that... Christopher Hogwood, as much as I admired him in many respects, was the closest to an originalist in the US uh, interpretation of the US Constitution um, as you could possibly find he was the closest but the others, especially Anna Bilesman, if you don't know Anna Bilesman's playing, dear listener please look up his Bark Suites, the first recording and the Gamba Sonatas amongst the best playing of anything anywhere in the world but he never looked at himself viewed himself as being an authentic you know historically informed specialist he he just liked the gut strings and read some stuff i was also struck by when i heard the minuet the third movement of mozart 40 yeah uh um, that that texture that gut strings brought gave the entire movement uh, sort of an energy that yeah. I'd not really heard before. Yeah. Uh, a rambunctiousness. Yes, yeah, and it almost took on things it, ever written. It took on uh, another shape that I hadn't really heard before. Yeah. Uh, historically, or hitherto, I'd heard it in three beats in a bar. Uh, in this, yeah. I heard it as, yeah. as yeah. one complete sort of yep. ongoing yep. movement that just would eventually come to an end, but nobody was entirely clear yeah. when. Yeah. Well, and it goes straight into the, yeah. that... Cr- insane last movement where he's got a tone row in the second half uh, is that something that you deliberately set out to achieve this is the nerdy thing that I want to get to is that something that one deliberately sets out to achieve or is it something that to a certain extent kind of occurs in the concert and then you listen to it back and go oh that was good we'll put that oh both both I mean the do you mean the connection to that, the, particularly the that phrasing. thing in that in that yeah that, the connection of the phrasing because that's what I hear I hear one sweeping line that goes all the way around it we always hope that there is a sweeping line but I'm not one to always advocate the long line I'm very much into details 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 microphrasing which if it's well done and interconnected then creates that what you're talking about the sweeping line but I, you see the G minor for the symphony is has this immutable forward motion to it, much like you know, Beethoven C minor fifth symphony, except for those strange pauses at the beginning, and then of course the oboe cadenza in the first movement is all leading towards the you know the great C major finale. Um, the G minor symphony 
I don't agree with Schumann's reaction to it, which was that it's you know a movement of Grecian elegance. I find it incredibly confused music, deliberately so, with this inattention that is palpable, that just thrusts you forward the whole time, and the minuet is no exception. And then, of course, the last movement, you can, it should be like a, you're on a, a, bo- a um, you know, a horse that's just bolted. There, I'm back to racing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, you should be on the radio. Yes, it's very good. <laughs> but, um, yeah, hey, but, you know, it's interesting, you, you bring this up about the G minor symphony, because I, even right from the beginning, you've got to ask yourself so many, interpreting it, so many questions. We don't even know how many bars there are in the phrase. Does the phrase start with the violas going da 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 is that, is that um, um, bar zero or is that bar one? Because if it's bar one, then it's a nine-bar phrase. Does the bar start, does the phrase start, or is it one, three, and four? And the whole way through that movement, you don't know how many bars you do. And who is making that decision at the beginning of the performance mm. and, and how to interpret it? Is that you well, or is I'm that everyone? No, you can't. Everyone. No, with a big, if you're playing a string quartet, you've got to have a discussion and you're equal, you know, uh, as a string quartet. But no, I'm, I mean, I'm directing the orchestra. You can't come along with a tabula rasa. I'm, I'm making decisions. But it's just a questions that need to be yeah. asked. You said you wanted to be nerdy. No, that's fine. Yeah, and we, we, we are, we, we've reached Good. a nerdy level, which is satisfying. Yeah, but it's really satisfying how confusing that movement is. Yes. No doubt you'll get listeners saying, no, absolutely, it's, there's no question. It's an eight-bar melody and starts in bar... Mm, I don't... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, the other thing, and, and sorry, I'll just say it, but it's not like um, Haydn, where he deliberately creates, uh, you know, five-bar melodies or seven-bar melodies, like in that great um, um, uh, symphony number sixty, Disturbed Time, I think it is. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so the next thing that I listened to this morning on the bus on the way in was um, a recording of Bach. Yeah, the art of the few, oh, art yeah. of fugue, yeah, um, which took me by surprise because it was <laughs> much softer. Oh. as in the, the the textures were much softer, much rounder. I expected because of, because I'd heard the Mozart first and oh, the gut right. strings in the Mozart. I'd expected to hear a similarly sort of Angular gutsy. Approach. Yes, exactly. So I'm not challenging you on your approach. I'm just interested uh, in why why. Well, maybe that. it's because you're on the bus. Because uh, if you're saying it's my okay, fault. so look what I've done there. Now where where you've got Mozart, where you well I just try to find the the essence of oh god that all sounds so lofty the essence of, <laughs> of Mozart. I'm certainly I'm, I realise I've asked it. This is I'm a really not going to question. say what the composer intended no. who the hell knows but um, what he's left us with are some immutables some uh, you, you can't really argue with them right like it's in the key of G um, you know there's some facts well you there, can there are facts yeah, you, exactly you got in the key of G you can't turn the first movement into a 3-4 you know things like this okay um, some pretty strong dynamics there um, with the art of the fugue Hello, I'll stop saying that. But <laughs> yeah, who, yeah, you could have I got to it help from a friend then. of mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 
so it means get real. Uh, yeah, no, he I hasn't left to us with anything except the damn notes. No dynamics. I don't think there are any dynamics. They're just notes. Okay, some people argue that they're just exercises. Well, if they're just exercises, then we we don't get up and play the Kreutzer etudes for violin, you know, in a concert. They transcend exercises, even though he might have written them for exercises. But he didn't leave us with much at all. So you've got to make decisions. So what I tried to bring there were contrasting styles. So I wasn't just trying to be stuck in, oh, well, you know, Bach would have sounded like this if we'd been there. No, I tried to transcend that and go a bit of, do a bit of astral travelling, which I think, I think Bach can handle. In fact, I think Bach deserves it. In fact, it's the last time I'll say in fact for the moment, two of my favourite interpreters of Bach, and all I want to say is in fact... Um, are the Swingle Singers yes. and, and Jacques Lussier yes. trio. So, yes, totally. Who so, have just taken you know, a brilliant thing and yeah. then made it their own. Yeah, and you can't do it. If you do it with Mozart, the music dies. It turns yes. into Muzak. And the Swingle Singers might be used as Muzak, but I would argue that they, when you really listen to them, it's, it's not Muzak. It, it's transcendental. I, know, it's, it's I just absolutely thing. love it. So I... I kind of had them in mind and but uh, but also and call it throwing too much into the pie too many ingredients but i also had the sound of stakovsky's transcriptions okay in there as well so maybe you were just going through a loud area on the bus <laughs> because at one point you know it i thought it gets pretty loud and then did you hear us singing in the last one yes yes yeah you about to say that you weren't well, singing. No, we we weren't. You had you had voices in your head. Yeah, yeah so, you're mad. So, so we not had your exactly. medication. Yeah. So we. So I was thinking, well, let's do it pizzicato, but the pizzicato sounded a bit weak, a bit insipid, and so I thought, why don't we try to sing and kind of swingle singer it? Okay. And you know what? In fact. <laughs> Bach was able to absorb. He can absorb all of that. Uh, okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about... Because it's about clarity. That's what I want to say. Uh, ...is the Beethoven string quartet, the yeah. late one. Opus with, uh, 130. With the fugue. Yeah. Uh, which I've come to quite late. I first heard it in Verbier, and I was completely blown away by its yeah. epicness. Um, played by a quartet? Yes. And so this was the first time I'd heard it arranged for... Or played by. Who, can I ask who was playing it? Oh, it might matter. have been Janine Jensen. Jansen. Jansen. Yeah. And Misha, somebody I can't pronounce the surname. Can't pronounce names. Yeah. Um, without making myself look like an ass. And I don't remember the viola player. Don't worry. Yeah. Many people don't. Um, and so this is the first time I'd heard a string ensemble version of it. There yeah. were moments when it sounded a bit like Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn? Yes, as in Mendelssohn okay. String Symphonies. Oh, yeah. As in it took on, it oh, yeah, seemed yeah, to yeah, take yeah. on an entirely, yeah. it wasn't completely, <laughs> completely random assessment. Well, and Mendelssohn um, wrote incredible quartets yes. that lend themselves very well to arrangement. So, yeah, let's talk about this crazy piece. Uh, why did you do it as an ensemble, please? Oh, well, That's what uh, there's know. precedent. Look, um, there, there was this reviewer in the in Ireland and he just hated anything that was arranged he was deranged 
like a- anything that was arranged. But you know what? For a string ensemble of 17 or so, there's almost nothing to play. I'd argue... <laughs> no, do, well, do you name the repertoire? You can play Elgar Serenade. It goes for like 12 minutes or something, 14 minutes. Oh, there's some stuff by Britain. <laughs> Um, and Holtz. Yeah, yeah. There's some but there's nice stuff about Britain. But, you know, I, I'm going to get to something. So even with Britain, right, apart from maybe the Simple Symphony, um, so, of course, you've got, you know, some extraordinary stuff by Britain. You've got the Tchaikovsky Serenade. You've got the Dvorak Serenade. But you know what? They were probably all written... Like the Frank Bridge variations, I'm just trying to think if there were, if he specifies how many. Play- but I know because of the divisions mm. that they've written for more than what we have on our stage normally, right? Because the bass divisions, we only have one bass, and there, there it divides into two bases. Same with Stravinsky Concerto in D. Um, you name all those great string pieces, especially Bartok Divertimento. He writes to be played at least for at least. Six firsts, six seconds, four violas, four cellos, two bases, mm-hmm. right? So that means that when we do it with fewer people, in effect, strictly speaking, this is a semantical point, um, it, it's an arrangement because we're not playing what the composer you know, wrote, right? And so, therefore, there's very little written specifically for 17 string players. So, therefore, you're forced to look into other, you know, you know, other... <laughs> do you do this to, in house? To uh, <laughs> other instruments. Yeah. Piano repertoire, and, of course, the most I, obvious I no, is the string quartet. I right. see no problem No, and I'm just that. talking through this because I'd like people to understand that the people who would be least concerned by this would be the composers themselves. Yes. And look at Walton, his A minor string quartet, which is a fantastic piece, right? William Walton. He um, arranged it himself, and it was premiered in what city, in what year, by what group? Are you now testing me? Yeah. I have absolutely no idea. I think it was no 1974. Idea. Whenever anybody yeah. asks me a question, okay. I freeze. That's and it was I in Perth. Answers by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. I think I'm right. <laughs> I hope I'm right. But a- anyway, look, he, he arranged it. He arranged it. I-, I can't imagine a composer, except maybe a nasty one like Ligeti, um, who would have a problem with a string quartet being arranged. And the Grosse Fugue, okay, if you're in a small room, a quartet does a good job. If you're in a larger hall, the string orchestra brings all sorts of dimensions to, to that piece. And the whole quartet works. I think, I think it works even better. Now, maybe I'm a bit... It's a bit... My views on this are a bit coloured by the fact that I'm in a string orchestra, but I don't think so, necessarily. I think, rather, it's because of my formative experience with the late string quartets, and they were through the prism of the extraordinary, and he's often not, even though I'm saying this in the wrong year, the extraordinary interpretations of Bernstein, 
quite extraordinary interpretation of Bernstein and Opus 131, the C-sharp minor quartet with the Vienna Philharmonic. It is fantastic. And that was my first experience, listening to a string quartet. Um, late Beethoven's string quartet played by... It was played by a massed orchestra. And you know who I share that experience with, I think? Please check, fact. Um, Chopin... <laughs> The first time we heard a Beethoven late string quartet was um, with massed strings. Wow. And then when I listened to the quartet, I preferred the string version. Yeah. So. That's very interesting. I hope I didn't. I hope you weren't feeling like you had to defend your choice. That I do. Yeah, no, well, no, that wasn't the, the intention. No, no, of the I know. I was interested doing in it. How, how, by having a uh, string ensemble version of a quartet, that it almost took on an entirely different character. No, look, thanks, John, love for, for saying that, because mm. I, I do feel I've, I've sort of weakened my, my need to be defensive. Um, but every now and again, I, I think it, it's it's okay to just remind people that arrangements are good yes. and that there are more... Okay, we had an example. So when we used to play in the... We played in the Conservatoire quite regularly. I'd like to just draw your attention to the yeah. table. I'm sorry. sorry. It's okay. Yeah, no, it's no, all no. Right. I've tied my hands here. <laughs> so we used to play in the Conservatoire quite regularly in the 90s and there was a fellow who used to run, run the hall and he said, but can you not play, you know, can you not play all those arrangements... And I said, okay, well, you've got the same thing, right? Tchaikovsky, you know, Dvorak, Elgar, and oh, we've almost, we've almost <laughs> run out. And, and I said, why don't you suggest something? And he said, oh, why don't you play that wonderful ch- chamber symphony of, of uh, Shostakovich? <laughs> and I said, oh, you mean the arrangement of Barshai of the Shostakovich eighth string quartet? Sure. And he went, okay, touche, got it, okay. And wow. So there you go. Now... If Which I heard for the first time. The arrangement as, or the quartet? Uh, the arrangement. Uh, I heard that for the first time and I was completely blown away by it. So I completely get what you mean. Yeah. I totally get yeah. what you mean. Uh, I, like, I, like I said before, I was struck by That's how. an example. Uh, but um, I far prefer seventh string quartet just as a quartet. The eighth string quartet is phenomenal as a string orchestra. This is Beethoven. Beethoven. Uh, no, Shostakovich. No, Shostakovich. Okay, the the eighth. Yeah, the okay. eighth. Yeah, the one that you probably heard, the, which was made famous as a chamber symphony, and then the fifteenth string quartet, his last string quartet. Some of those movements work just unbelievably well as a string orchestra. But you know what else works really well in arrangement? I can't guess, so you're going to have to tell no, me. No. Okay. Das, das Lied von der Erde, an arrangement by Schoenberg completed by somebody else. But that works incredibly well. I Beautifully heard, well. I, last week I heard an arrangement of Brahms' piano quintet in G minor by Schoenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that didn't really work for me. Maybe that it wasn't <coughs> played very well. I don't uh, know. I mean, it felt a little bit sort of like um, it was a university or a... a conservatory okay, exercise yeah. that kind of thing okay and then um, this is I think I've got the name right um, 18 um, no there's a an anonymous 1801 arrangement of the um, of Symphonia Concertante Mozart mm-hmm. the violin viola one works really well 
then there's an arrangement of two two Loyland Spiegel. Have you heard this? The quintet. It's pretty funny. He wipes out most of it. I, I think it's by a guy called Harsenville or something like this, and he wipes out, well, most of the piece. But it's a good sort of introduction. Uh, what will we hear when you come to the Barbican, please? Oh, yeah. Well, the way we're, we're talking so much... It, no, we'll I don't mean. Actual, I don't mean literally describe what we're listening to here. I mean, as in when you're performing. No, no. What I mean is, yeah. we, we've talked for so long. It's almost time to go on stage. Okay. Um, I don't know that it's gone on that long. No. Um, <laughs> okay. So. Um, don't do yourself down. It's been okay, a fascinating. Okay. Well, we're playing the three last symphonies of Mozart. Uh, okay. So there you go. So, so great. And un- un- I shouldn't say unfortunately, but they're, they're not on. Period, they're not. Period, they're not played on gut strings. Some of us will be using gut strings, right. absolutely. But we don't have those early, those wind and brass from the time of. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that's always <laughs> an amazing thing to do. So you're doing all three in one concert? Yeah. Okay, so it's that's more exhausting me. It's I don't really, really care about exhausting. that. I'm just the audience. I know, exactly. <laughs> that's what you're paid to do. So uh, so that's number one. Number two? Concert number two? Um, actually, I think number one is our movie called Mountain. Uh-huh. Narrated by Willem Dafoe. Uh-huh. So we've we, we've got this bespoke movie called Mountain. Please do come and give me feedback. I'd like to hear your... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly Shit. nervous now. Oh, no, I'm nervous. <laughs> okay, so, and number three? So then it's a mixed bag concert, finishing with Bartok Divertimento in a non-arrangement because we're collaborating with the Guildhall Strings. Mm-hmm. Been rehearsing with them on this very day that we're making this podcast. And we're presenting a soprano called Nicole Carr, who's who's on the Heroines album. Yeah, exactly. Released this year. I've done my research. I know what's going on. You are good. (laughs) Um, Which is an album of Handel arias. Uh, Sort of. Yeah, and but it's got Beethoven. Oh. So Il not Handel, not just Handel, no, arias, no, so it's got no. some Beethoven And well. Il Perfido, which is a concert aria, and then if the audience claps enough, we'll present a, not world premiere, because it was performed in Australia, it seems that it'll be a UK premiere of a very little known, obviously, Beethoven aria, oh. which sounds just like Rossini. Right. Hmm. Uh, will it be on the radio? I don't know. Sorry, I don't <laughs> know. You ought to and then what else before. are we playing? Come on! Oh, and then this uh, derangement I've made of the Richicare for six voices from the musical offering, where oh at the beginning God, really? I'm imagining <gasps> the head being cut off of Frederick the Great's possible homosexual lover by Frederick. The great's brutal, bipolar, psychopathic a, father. There's a lot in there. There's a lot yeah. in there to get our teeth into. The last time I heard about <laughs> that uh, was uh, Jeremiah Level Music Studies, when that, right. that piece was on yeah. the syllabus, and I remember hating it for some reason. I don't know. I was don't know played why. on a harpsichord. I think it was just that it was so played it was over and probably, over and over again. Probably written, conceived for a piano, because he had access to Frederick's. 
um, Silberman piano collection, as in forte piano. So, yeah. Banged uh, piano. I feel as though we've covered everything. I'm just like looking at the time. Uh, we've run to 56 minutes. We haven't <laughs> talked about Brexit. Uh, oh, you no, did, you did mention it a bit. I don't, I don't think that we need to mention no. Brexit, really. Thanks to Richard Tonietti for joining me in conversation at the Barbican. The Australian Chamber Orchestra's Barbican Residency begins on the 22nd of October 2018 and runs until the 24th. They'll be back in 2019 and 2020 as well. Please rate, like and share this podcast on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. You'll find me on Twitter at ThoroughlyGood. There's also a Facebook page. You can email me using the address john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. There's even now a newsletter to subscribe to. Go to www.tinyletter.com forward slash thoroughly good and follow the extremely straightforward instructions to subscribe. Thank you very much for listening.